morning. It's good to be with you again. Um, glad to have, glad to uh, witness the fact that you all ended that chorus at the right place. That was very good. Let me ask you again to uh, turn to Joshua 22, which we looked at last week in verses 1 through 9. Joshua, the 22nd chapter. Let me uh, simply uh, remind you um, of what is going on here by beginning with verse 9 of Joshua chapter 22. So the people of Reuben, those are tribes, and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned home, their home being east of the Jordan. They returned home, parting from the people of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the land of Gilead, usually that land west of the Jordan designated as Canaan, the land east of the Jordan, I've got to do this backwards, the land east of the Jordan designated as Gilead. So they have returned to the land of Gilead, their own land on which they had, of which they had possessed themselves by command of the Lord through Moses. And when they came to the region of the Jordan, that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. And the people of Israel, that is the western tribes, heard it. When they heard about it, they said, Behold, the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh, have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against Israel. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this portion of your word, we pray that... Uh, the words of my mouth and the meditations of the hearts of these, your people, will be pleasing and acceptable in your sight that we might know your blessing. Teach us your truth, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You know, in the past, when I, when I felt the need to, to write a, a strongly worded letter concerning a troubling issue, I'd set my letter aside for at least a day or longer, and then I'd reread it, and only then would I decide whether to send it or whether it needed to be rewritten or whether it needed to be tossed into my circular file. But now, we live in an age of instant communication, and it's great at times to be able to uh, quickly communicate with someone. But it's far too easy to push the send button without taking the time to carefully reconsider exactly what it is we've written. Here in Judges chapter 22, in verses 10 through 34, 
which we will discuss in their entirety here in just a moment. Here, Israel faces and responds to a significantly important issue. And they have to do so without the aid of any kind of instant communication. So let me, re let me reset the stage for you. The Lord has delivered Israel out of Egypt. He's led them 40 years through the wilderness, and he has now brought them into the promised land. And over the past five years or so, he has enabled them to overcome most of the nations opposing them. And now there, there are still more battles to fight, but each of the tribes will be responsible to take full possession of their assigned territories. And as we saw last week, the territories belonging to Gad and to Reuben and to half of the tribe of Manasseh lay east of the Jordan River. And what we're told, as we've just read here in Scripture, is as those two and a half tribes recross the Jordan into those eastern territories, they build an imposing large altar along the banks of the Jordan River. Now look at, look at verse 12, chapter 22, verse 12. When the Israelites living west of the Jordan, when they learned of this, the whole assembly, we are told, gathered at Shiloh, which is probably where the tabernacle was located. They gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. Nine and a half tribes about to go to war against two and a half of the tribes. That's quite a response. It's just a little overwhelming. But if you look back and just listen, don't try to look here, but if you were to look at Deuteronomy 12 verses 13 and 14, where Moses gives them instructions prior to their entrance into the promised land, you would find in Deuteronomy 12, verses 13 and 14, that Moses instructed them, listen, listen to Moses' instructions. Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see, but only at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes. Israel was to offer up their burnt offerings, that offering of total dedication. They were to offer that up only at the location chosen by the Lord. At first, it was wherever the tabernacle was located. Later on, of course, it would be only at the temple in Jerusalem located within the territory of Judah. For Israel, there was to be one altar representing one faith, the one faith of one people in covenant relationship with the Lord. So that's at least part of the reason. That, that, that is perhaps the reason the Western tribes respond so strongly upon hearing that the Eastern tribes have built an imposing altar, not just an altar. The scripture says an imposing altar, which I guess means big an imposing altar along the banks of the Jordan. Okay, now listen to me carefully. 
Many commentators and preachers that I highly respect have no problem with the Western tribes' response to what the Eastern tribes have done. In fact, I tremble to tell you that even John Calvin, John Calvin, argues that the response of the Western tribes is an illustrious display of piety, teaching us that if we see the pure worship of God corrupted, we must be strenuous to the utmost of our ability in vindicating it. Well, clearly the Western tribes are strenuously concerned to vindicate what they believe to be a corruption of pure worship. Okay, this is between you and me, okay? So don't, don't tell anybody this, okay? I have to tell you, I have to confess, I have mixed emotions. I mean, I just can't get past them. I have mixed emotions about the initial response of the Western tribes. To some degree, it seems to me at least, what we have here is a failure to communicate. That failure lays, first lays, in my opinion, with the Eastern tribes. I mean, why didn't they inform their Western brothers their reason for building such an altar? Well, I don't know, but they didn't. And clearly, at least it seems to me, the Western tribes assume the worst about what their Eastern brothers have done. Now, as a pastor for some eons, I heard many rumors over the years about questionable situations. Now, I wasn't always successful in doing this, but I, I tried to put the best possible interpretation on what I heard until I had overwhelming proof to the contrary. Overwhelming proof to the contrary. Which is perhaps why the response of the Western tribes troubles me. Now, gratefully, we haven't read here, but if you look ahead in your Bibles at verses 13 through 15, greatly we're told in verses 13 through 15 that despite their initial response, the Western tribes elect to send Phineas, the priest, along with representatives of those Western tribes to speak face to face with their Eastern brothers. But again, <laughs> I have to confess, I, I want to talk to Phineas because I'm troubled. I'm troubled about Phineas and his companions' approach to their Eastern brothers. Look at verse 16. Look at verse 16. They're meeting face-to-face, -face, initial conversation. Phineas begins by accusing his brothers of having broken faith, of having turned away from following the Lord, of having rebelled against the Lord. Look at verse 17. Phineas accuses them of being guilty of the sin of Peor. At Peor, during their earlier days in the wilderness, at Peor, the Israelites worshipped Baal by having illicit sexual relations with the daughters of Moab. And in response, back there in the wilderness, the Lord inflicted all Israel with a plague. It may be that Phineas brings that up because, by the way, it was Phineas's forceful response 
back there in the wilderness. It was Phineas who brought a halt to Israel's rebellion at that moment. But now, here in verses 17 and 18, it is Phineas who accuses his brothers of having not cleansed themselves from this sort of rebellion against the Lord. He assumes they're guilty of choosing to ignore the Lord's command to formally worship him at one altar in the one place the Lord designated. And I understand. Phineas is properly concerned that if his eastern brothers have so sinned, which he assumes they have, it could result in all of Israel being punished by the Lord. I mean, that's why he's so concerned here. Now, in the midst of all of this, look at verse 19. Look at verse 19. Graciously, I'm glad to find a little grace here. Graciously, in verse 19, Phineas offers the eastern tribes the opportunity to return to the territory west of the Jordan, promising to provide them with territory among their western brothers. That's great. But then... Having made that offer, he once again calls upon them to stop rebelling against the Lord. Verse 20, look at verse 20. Phineas compares what he assumes his eastern brothers have done to the sin of Achan. Now you remember, I hope, that Achan was the man who took the devoted possessions, the devoted riches from Jericho, riches that the Lord said were to be devoted to destruction. Achan and his family paid an awful price for his sin. And again, it seems to me that Phineas is clearly concerned that what he assumes to be the sin of the eastern tribe will bring God's judgment upon all of Israel. Now, again, you've listened to my approach, to my tone of voice, and my reaction to all of this. I just want you to know There are others who see all of this in a much more positive light. Uh, They're just sweeter people than than me. So now, finally, finally, look at verse 21. Finally, beginning in verse 21, the representatives of the eastern tribes are allowed to speak. And I, I have to wonder, I mean, I'm sorry. Maybe I just don't understand the culture here. But but I have to wonder why Phineas and his fellow Israelites did not first ask the Eastern brothers to explain why they built such an imposing altar instead of immediately accusing them of being in rebellion against the Lord. I mean, look at verse 22. Listen to the passion here. Listen to the passion of the representatives of the Eastern tribes as they respond to all of these accusations with these incredible words, the mighty God, the mighty one, God the Lord, the mighty one, God the Lord, twice, the mighty one, God the Lord, he knows. And let all Israel know. Knows what? Look at the end of verse 22 and verse 23. The Lord knows that we, the eastern tribes, that we are ready, we're ready for the Lord and for you, the Western tribes, to wreak vengeance on us 
if we have rebelled against the Lord and broken faith with him, if we've done as you accuse, then strike us. Look at verses 24 through 29. Here the Eastern brothers begin to explain why they built this altar. Look at verse 26. They wanted understood that they did not build this altar as a place for offering up burnt offerings. Look at verse 27. They built this altar. We built this altar as a witness between us, the eastern tribes, and you, the western tribes, a witness that we, the eastern tribes, we do, we do perform the service of the Lord before the Lord in the place he has appointed. They built this altar, they say, so that the western tribes' children will never be able to say to the children of the eastern tribes, you have no portion in the Lord. Now, why in the world would that day ever come? Well, it's because of the Jordan River. The eastern tribes are concerned that the Jordan River might one day be viewed as a permanent boundary separating the east from the west. They built the altar as a witness to the fact that despite the Jordan physically separating east from west, they were all, they all, east and west, they are all part of the one Israel of God. Now that probably seems a little peculiar to us, and that's because, at least in part, it's because we take bridges for granted. We have little appreciation for how significant a boundary a river may form, separating people living on either side. We have little appreciation for that. I mean, think about what it must have been like when there was no bridges spanning the Tennessee River to join downtown Chattanooga with North Shore. Think of what that might have been like. And just as an example, Brooklyn, Brooklyn, New York, separated from Manhattan by the East River, Brooklyn did not become part of New York City until after, after what? After the Brooklyn Bridge was built. So, let me add this. It's even more important. In the book of Judges, you go ahead and read the book of Judges you're going to find moments when the separation caused by the Jordan River does lead to serious tensions between the eastern and western tribes. It's time for a drink. So look at verse 29. Another impassioned plea on the part of the eastern brothers. Listen to them. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offerings, grain offerings, or sacrifices other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle. Far be it from us to ever do that. 
We didn't build this altar as a place of sacrifice. We built this altar as a witness to all, both the East and Western tribes, that there is but one altar in which to offer up sacrifices to the Lord, for we are one people, the covenant people of God, despite the fact that a river separates us. Look at verse 34. Look at the last verse. The tribes of Gad and Reuben, the two tribes fully invested in the eastern region of Israel. Half of Manasseh was in the east, half was in the west. So the tribes of Gad and Reuben called the imposing altar witness. They built it as a witness to all Israel, which includes the eastern tribes, that the Lord is God and he is to be obeyed in all things, especially in how and where he was to be formally worshipped. Look at verses 30 and 31. Verses 30 and 31. Phineas and his fellow representatives judge what their eastern brothers have told them to be good in our eyes. Great. They're persuaded. They're persuaded their eastern brothers have not committed a breach of faith that would lead to Israel suffering the Lord's judgment. And look at verses 22 and 23. Phineas and his fellow representatives return home. And in verse 33, we're told that their report to their Western brothers was good in the eyes of the people. And therefore, they no longer spoke of going to war against their Eastern brothers. What a story that is. And I may be a little rough on my Western brothers. I'm not sure. But I have an awful lot of sympathy for my Eastern brothers. And as we talked about last week, here in these closing chapters of Joshua, next week, the Lord willing, we're going to look in Joshua 23, and the Lord willing, my final week with you, we'll look in Joshua 24. But as Joshua comes to an end, it's a moment of transition for Israel. Instead of just being Israel in mass, now the 12 tribes begin to separate from each other to occupy their assigned territories. Well, likewise, as we talked about last week, it's a moment of transition for you during these weeks and months that Brad has chosen to label A.D., this time after Dan. Well, as, as is demonstrated here in Judges chapter 22, moments of transition can be troubled by misunderstandings and tensions. You're soon, you will soon elect a search committee to look for a candidate to be your next pastor. Most likely, been a pastor for a long time. I'm confident I know what I'm talking about here. Not what I'm about to say is not said in any kind of specific judgment of you as a congregation here. But I know these things to be true. And if you don't believe what I'm about to say is true, it's simply because you haven't been there and you haven't done this. So, 
you're about to elect a search committee. Most likely, some of you are going to question the makeup of that committee. Some of you will be disappointed by who is not chosen and by who is chosen to serve on that committee. I promise you, some of you will be. If, if some of you aren't, then this is the most highly sanctified group of people I have ever stood before. <laughs> For some, it may seem that the search committee is taking far too long to find a candidate. I promise you, are those guys doing anything? And when your search committee settles on a candidate, some may question whether the search committee has found the right man. Also, during these coming months, some may question the decisions of the session as they exercise oversight of this congregation. For example, who in the world are these people that they ask to stand in this pulpit and preach? <laughs> Times of transition can be troubled by gossip, by innuendos, by disparaging comments about what is or isn't being done. So I encourage you, and I'll be praying for you. And I encourage you during these next several months, pray for your leaders, pray for your committee, and pray for yourself. Pray that you might put the best possible interpretation on what is or is not being done until you have overwhelming proof to the contrary. And if what you assume to be serious issues arise, then talk about them face to face with those whose leadership or decisions you think questionable. Above all, loving your Lord and believing that he is the one who is sovereignly leading this church. Love one another. Love one another with a love that is patient and kind. A love that does not envy or boast. A love that is not arrogant or rude. A love that does not insist upon having its own way. A love that's not irritable or resentful. A love that does not rejoice when things don't seem to go well, but rejoices in the truth. A love that bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And believe me, believe me, Believe me, I've been there, folks. I've done this. There will be much for you to endure in these days of transition. Endure them with love for your Lord, and therefore, loving your Lord, endure them with loving trust in one another. Your committee and session must take great pains. Your committee and session must take great pains 
to communicate as openly with you as they can, as far as they can. And you must lovingly be ready to put the best interpretation on what they tell you. If you have questions, then speak to one another face to face. The answers you make, the answer you get, it may not satisfy you. But you must strive out of love for the Lord and thus for one another to put the best possible interpretation on what you're told. Times of transition can be infected with temptations to do otherwise. So I'll be praying for you. Love the Lord. Love one another. And together let us see what the Lord will do. The Lord, who will never leave you or forsake you. The Lord, who will love you with a love that will never let you go. Let's pray. Father, teach us these truths. Impress them upon us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.